we come to that time in our worship service when we have the wonderful privilege and responsibility to open up the Word of God, the infallible record, and we do so again this morning by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this wonderful epistle. And I come to you again feeling the gravity as well as the gladness of preaching. Certainly there is a dreadful seriousness about eternity whenever we come to a time when we open up the Word of God and we reflect upon its great truths. And it is my prayer that you will all have a solemn consciousness of the presence of God this morning as we look into His Word. Before we look at the text this morning, I would invite you to think with me a little bit. I believe every true Christian, if he or she is honest, will admit that there are certain areas in their life in which they struggle with some form of sin. Only the hypocrite would claim spiritual superiority and perfect purity of life. But perhaps because of what I have endured over the last three or four weeks with the lives of some of you, but certainly some people outside the church, and I've watched just the, the consequences of sin destroy families, that combined with the text that is before us, I, I believe that is for that reason that my heart is a bit heavy this morning. And in that heaviness, I must say that I want to Have you think about your own heart and your own walk with Christ? Because I fear that all too often, and sometimes even in this church, we have a cavalier attitude towards sin. That somehow we lack a deep and a passionate desire to really walk with God in a close way. To really please Him. I fear that at times there is a lack of a real sense of commitment To do more than just choose between good and evil, but to choose between good and excellent. That somehow there is a common thinking among Christians today that there's really nothing off limits. That we can do and think really whatever we choose. And I see this from attire to entertainment. There seems to be very little hatred of the flesh, very little hatred of the world, very little hatred of sin, but rather at times a naive and perhaps even at times a joyful embracing of it. I fear many of us have been infected by the virus of carnality that was described in the apostate compromising church of Laodicea, and I believe we are living in that Laodicean church age in which many people profess Christ, but very few of them really possess it. And because there are so many tares amongst the wheat in so many churches today, there is really very little sense of living for the glory of God and living separate from the world and truly wanting to do all we can to demonstrate Christ-likeness in our life. I fear that we live in a church age that knows very little of the saving as well as the purifying power of the gospel of Christ. 
My friend, Dr. H.T. Spence, wrote along these lines, and I quote, The Lord Himself described this church age and its boast. In Revelation 3.17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. He goes on to say, This church age no longer hates the flesh, the world, and sin, To the contrary, it hates spirituality, poverty, godly living, suffering, persecution, and all such things that were part of the character that marked the godly in previous generations. This is the hour of power when rock and roll has become the theme music of the church, when the church revels in being in the world as well as of the world. It is neither seeking nor desiring a spiritual kingdom within or a spiritual heaven later. It is satisfied with a physical, materialistic kingdom on earth, purchased by the bread of the earth, which is money, as it rejects the bread of heaven. End quote. I fear that in most cases, if you were to ask people that profess to know Christ, to list some areas of carnality in their life, they would kind of be at a loss. And therefore, they would not see the things that they need to be fleeing from. Many Christians are content, I fear, to merely enter the gate of the kingdom of Christ, but they have no real desire to go deep within the realm of holiness and explore the riches of God and walk closely with Him. And experience Him in ways that perhaps they have heretofore never done. Few seem to be asking, am I truly walking in the newness of life? Am I truly walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh? Do I have a longing to truly be more consecrated to Christ because of my deep love for Him? And do I really have a craving for a more intensified experience of the presence of God in my life. Frequently throughout Scripture, God calls His people to come out and be separate from the world. And that's almost laughable in Christian circles today. We read about this in 2 Corinthians 6, for example, that we're to come out and to be separate. In fact, in Hebrews 7.26 We're told to be like Christ who was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. In 2 Corinthians 6, again, God warns there His people of the danger of being unequally yoked with non-believers in any kind of a close relationship, like marriage, for example, or any kind of a spiritual enterprise. And yet, people ignore that. The text goes on to say that if you refuse to do that, in essence, you'll forfeit manifold blessings that would be available to you as a child of God. But people ignore it. People attend apostate churches that teach false doctrine and call themselves Christians. Total disregard for being separate from the world. They read books written by false teachers, watch television shows of false teachers, and on and on it goes. Many Christian people will literally hand the education of their children over to non-believers and apostate Christians who will systematically and imperceptibly infect them 
with a godless worldview that dishonors God. And it doesn't seem to bother them. Christian families spend hours every week allowing Hollywood to influence their minds and their hearts. The music and dance of the world gradually squeezes our young people into its mold, along with all of the messages of of rebellion against divine authority, of immorality and narcissism and so on. Music where rhythm, not lyrics, tend to dominate the song, fanning the flames of carnal desires and sexual passions and vulgarity, and on and on it goes. And yet, Christians don't seem to be bothered by that. It's not at all uncommon to see Christians going out and covering themselves now with tattoos and body piercing. Something that's clearly prohibited in the Old Testament as a form of paganism and idolatry. We can look around and despite the numerous admonitions and commands in the Word of God for women to dress modestly, we see females, even many that call themselves Christians, dressed like trollops. Many times we can go into the bedrooms of our young girls and we can see posters of these very kinds of people. We see young men dressed like rappers or carrying on themselves the appearance of a very godless group of people that they somehow admire. You see it in hairstyles, clothing, vocabulary. It's obvious that many people that even call themselves Christians have a deliberate desire to somehow identify themselves with people that hate the God that we claim that we love. Churches even cater to these ungodly practices by offering services that not only condone wickedness, but exalt it. And in many cases, call it worship. Unfortunately, calling Christians to live holy lives, to live separate from the world, tends to conjure up visions of Amish legalism or something like that. Rather than calling people back to the very clear commands and admonitions that the Lord has given us for our good and His glory. And as we think about these wonderful admonitions that God gives us that we're going to look at again this, this morning, we are reminded of texts such as 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, where the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks to us and says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. By the way, remember, sanctification is being set apart from sin unto God. So God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Bottom line, my friends, I fear that all too often we as Christians fail to admit that there are some things that just absolutely ought to be off limits for our families and for ourselves. Compare the mindset of this modern age to Paul's words in Ephesians 5. He says, be imitators of God. That there is enough to rule out much of what we do and think. He goes on to say, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He goes on to say, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. Well, the Holy Spirit dealt with these very things in the first century as he continues to deal with it today in our world. Issues of carnality. And we learn more of the Spirit of God's exhortations with respect to these issues as we come to 1 Peter. And again, by way of review, the first 12 verses of 1 Peter is a passionate doxology of praise for all that God has given us in our salvation and therefore the rightful obligations that we have as Christians that we are to live in light of eternity, we're to live separate from the world, and we're to live with reverential awe. And now, in verses 18 through 21, which will be our focus this morning, he continues to summon us all to holy living by reminding us of, of a crucial and a sobering element of our salvation, namely our redemption. Let's get a running start at this. Go back to verse 14. Follow along. First Peter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And now beginning in verse 18, where we're going to focus this morning, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. And as of, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Dear friends, this text should stir our hearts to humble obedience and really cause us to re-examine our commitment to consecrate ourselves completely to Christ and to become more like Him rather than finding ourselves becoming more and more like the world that hates Him and frankly hates us. Here Peter emphasizes four marvelous 
truths, marvelous aspects of our, of our redemption that should motivate us to holy living. Let me give them to you and then we'll talk about them. Number one, we will see the deliverance of redemption. Secondly, the cost of redemption. Thirdly, the transcendence of redemption. And finally, the blessings of redemption. And as we revisit the sacred doctrine of redemption, my desire is to lovingly yet forthrightly call every believer to re-examine himself or herself, to re-examine your lifestyle, to see if indeed you are walking in holiness, that you have set yourself apart. And I might also add that if you find yourself right now thinking, oh brother, here we go. If you find yourself feeling a seething resentment in your heart to what God is saying to you this morning and saying, in essence, Pastor, would you please just get off of this? Just leave me alone. There's nothing wrong with... And then you start filling in the blank. Dear friend, if that is you this morning, I would ask that you do not silence your conscience with the ridiculous justifications and rationalizations that are indicative of our sinful hearts. But rather, instead, you will say, Spirit of God, speak to me. Speak to those areas in my life that perhaps right now my flesh is railing against. The first motive for holy living that Peter reminds us of here in this text is because of our deliverance of redemption. And this truth is inherent in the meaning of the very word redeemed that we see in verse 18. To redeem means to buy back or to purchase by paying a ransom. And redemption, as many of you already know, involves a redeemer who purchases someone he loves, who buys him or her back out of a situation of bondage and danger. And herein is the problem with most Christian living. We do not remember the bondage and the danger from which we have been redeemed. And therefore, we are all too quick to go back and to wallow in it once again. This concept of redemption is rooted in the Old Testament, in God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. An affirmation of the love of a divine kinsman who redeemed his covenant people from their helpless and desperate condition of slavery. The blood, as you will recall, of the Passover lamb that was put on the doorposts and the lentils was a symbol of an innocent substitute that would someday come and be our Redeemer, none other than the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 78, beginning in verse 42, where he reminds the Israelites of the power of God on the day when He redeemed them from the adversary, when He performed His signs in Egypt and His marvels in the field of Zoan. And then it goes on in that text to rehearse the plagues and the miracles of the exodus from Egypt that demonstrated the wrath of God against the wicked as well as His covenantal love for His own. By the way, the Gentiles also understood redemption. They did it frequently. This was really a picture of a slave whose freedom was purchased by someone that loved that slave, many times a family member, and they purchased that person back with a price. But friends, you must understand that in the Word of God, redemption carries with it the idea and the sense of deepest love and loyalty 
among a family member. Now, can you imagine for one moment if one of your children, and most of us have children or grandchildren, or someone that you love if it's not a child, but imagine someone you love is taken from you. Imagine, parents, if it is a child, and your child now is taken over to some other country, and now that child is in slavery, you would do anything you possibly could to redeem that child back to yourself. That is the notion that we have here. And we see the full impact of this redeeming love of God for His children in other New Testament passages where the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ paid for our release. We look, for example, in Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. In other words, to be a ransom in place of many, emphasizing His substitutionary atonement. He was a ransom. He was a, the price that was required to redeem that slave, that prisoner. Now, I want you to understand that while it's crucial for us to remember and to see here the love of our Redeemer, and we're going to look more at that in a moment, we must not forget the context of this passage. And that is Peter's cry for holy living. And therefore, we must underscore the severity and the bondage from which we have been redeemed. That is my heart's cry this morning to somehow get you to reflect upon that. Because this is utterly essential in motivating us to holy living. We must begin by seeing the deliverance of our redemption. Look again at verse 18. Actually, you start back in the latter part of 17. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And then he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. And then later on in verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. And again... From what have we been redeemed? Dear friends, it was from the bondage of sin. The consequences, the tragedy of sin. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, the reason so many Christians, I believe, tend to fall back into conformity with the world, is that we forget our former condition. You see, the Word of God tells us that before we were redeemed, before we were saved, we were held captive by Satan, by the fear of death and by sin. We agonized over sin's pollution in in our life and the guilt of sin. We stood condemned before God, violators of His law. Children of wrath, the Word tells us. And we were unable to free ourselves from sin's dominion and curse. And because of sin, our lives were going nowhere fast. Every relationship was affected by sin. Our health, our worldview, everything was rancid and toxic because of our sin. And from this we have been redeemed. And I pray that somehow the full force of this unspeakably horrific condition will grip your heart so that you will say, my goodness, if that is what I've been redeemed from, why in the world would I want to go back to that? Why would I want my children to be around that? 
Why would I want that garbage to somehow infect my mind and pollute me and to somehow conform me into the very world from which I've been delivered? How idiotic! How blasphemous! You see, before we were redeemed, again, we were slaves to sin. And the sad thing about it, we were deserving eternal punishment and yet we enjoyed our slavery. We were too ignorant to even see it. And my, how we would resent the very idea that we were in bondage to sin or Satan. If you don't believe that, just talk to a non-believer and tell them that you're in bondage to sin and to Satan. And see their reaction. And like all who refuse to be saved, once upon a time, dear friends, we loved our sin. (laughs) We loved it. We didn't even see it as sin. sin. And we would exhaust ourselves to do everything we possibly could to satisfy the lust of our flesh. In verse 18, the latter part, Peter further describes the unregenerate past of the Jews by stating that they were redeemed from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. A futile life. What is futile? It means vain, worthless, senseless, trivial. A life that is empty. A life that is useless. That is without value. And you watch people today. All they want to do is chase after some material thing. Some fleeting pleasure of life. They can't wait to watch the next football game or whatever. And I'm all for watching football. I watched a game yesterday. Don't hear me talking against that. But the point is, so often, especially with non-believers, they pursue things that are absolutely insignificant in the grand scope of eternity. And their whole life is that way until they die. A futile way of life. And this is a perfect description of a life that is lived with no commitment to love and to serve Christ. And regardless of the accomplishments of that particular life, those accomplishments are worth no more than the dirt that will be thrown upon that casket when they die. And for this reason we are exhorted in Ephesians 4.17, to walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You see, friends, again, what Peter is saying is you've been redeemed from all of that. Moreover, the meaningless and mindless religion and secular philosophies were a way of life inherited from your forefathers, he says in verse 18. By the way, this is a a profound indictment against the apostate Jews of that day as well as the pagans because of their religious tradition that they had inherited. And by the way, even with the pagans today, not to mention apostate Judaism, we continue to see how those futile ways of thinking that they have inherited from their forefathers incarcerates millions of people in prisons of sin and deception from which they desperately need to be redeemed. Look at the deceptions of Islam, of of Mormonism, of Hinduism, Buddhism, Roman Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses. You go on down the line. People trapped in these prisons. But we can rejoice because God, in His infinite love, purchased our redemption from the wretchedness He delivered us from the hopelessness of that condition. And in light of such a marvelous redemption, the point is simply this. Why would we want to go back and live that way? 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, he goes on to say, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now imagine, if I can give you an illustration, imagine being enslaved in the drug culture of the inner city ghetto. And you're doing, as many of those people do, you're enslaved by the drugs and the alcohol and even the physical consequences of all of that. You're living in poverty and in disease and you're blaming everybody but yourself for your problem. You're walking around with hatred in your heart. And yet at some level you're enjoying all of the immorality and all of the bravado that is indicative of that culture. And you're so ignorant of your own condition that you're oblivious to the even worse state that will be yours when you die, lest you repent and place your faith in Christ. And imagine somehow one comes along and gives his, himself as a ransom to buy you out of that bondage and to give you the hope of heaven and to give you purity of life, and you begin to get a glimpse of all of the glories that can be yours. But then in a supreme act of unthankfulness and rebellion and even stupidity, you say, you know what, thanks for all of that. I'm glad I've got that, but I want to go back and live that way. I want to go back to the ghetto of sin. I enjoy all of that corruption. In 2 Peter 2.22, Peter compares such insanity to a dog that returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing who returns to wallowing in the mire. Why would anyone who now has a new heart and a new mind choose to go back and associate with that former way of life and to somehow even let their children be influenced by that? We read in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Evil companions will corrupt good character. And yet Christians seem to have no compunction whatsoever with letting their children spend vast amounts of time with unsaved children. I don't understand it. It's interesting if you consider something here in the first 18 verses of Peter's epistle. He describes our former condition in three ways. I want you to notice this. In verse 14, he describes it as the former lusts. And again, lusts here refers to the passions of the flesh that have a natural bent to selfishness and the pursuit of all manner of evil things that dishonor God's, dishonors God. In James 1.14, by the way, we read, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There it is, lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Let me give you an example of this. Let me show you how this works. Let's say that you have the lust to draw attention to yourself. Because of your pride, you have the lust of self-aggrandizement, if you want to put it that way. And let's just say that Therefore, because of that lust, now, in your imagination, in the secret recesses of your mind, you begin to visualize yourself with certain clothes, or with a certain body image, or with certain material possessions, or a certain title, or some accolade of praise, or whatever. 
And by the way, all of those things are motivated to somehow bring glory to yourself, not to bring glory to God. And so now your lust is being pandered within the secret recesses of your imagination. And that begins to fuel the passions of your flesh. It begins to ignite your emotions. And your emotions now begin to rule your mind. And you begin to set your mind not on things above, but on the things of the world. And you begin to come up with any way possible to somehow satisfy satisfy that lust so that you can draw attention to yourself in some special way. And so care and discretion are thrown to the wind. And like a sexually aroused stallion after a mare, you will go through every obstacle to satisfy your desire to be noticed. You will attack anyone that gets in your way or anyone that tries to stop you. Dear friends, that is the bondage of sin. That's the former lust from which we have been redeemed. We're no longer a slave to those types of things like those without Christ. So the point is, why go back and live that way? He also talks about our former unredeemed condition as being a slavery to ignorance in verse 14, which is our utter inability to understand, much less live, spiritual truth. And this, again, is indicative of people without Christ. It's interesting what Paul describes in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17, describing the unredeemed. He says, They walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of heart, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. By the way, this is a source of constant frustration for me as a pastor, and I talk with other pastors who share this. To see people living in some kind of spiritual ignorance, and you explain to them that theologically 2 plus 2 is 4 on a particular issue, but they say, no, nah, no, nah, I think it's 5. And you watch them go and run into the same wall that they've been running into their whole life. But again, we've been redeemed from that. We don't have to be slaves to those ignorant things. Not only former lusts and ignorance, but we've been redeemed in verse 18 from your futile way of life, as we've talked about, that worthless, meaningless, vain life. And indeed, people tend to believe whatever their parents have taught them, and that's why Peter says a futile way of life inherited by your forefathers. By the way, that can also work to our advantage if we teach our children the truth. But beloved, I hope you can see that the pit from which we have been redeemed is a terrible thing. And the deliverance that we have should therefore motivate us to holy living. That's Peter's point with all of this. So not only are we motivated by the deliverance of our redemption, but we should also be motivated by the cost of it. Verse 18, he says that we weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see, there is nothing on earth that compares to the value of the blood of Christ. Nothing on earth. And I want you to hear this. Our obligation as redeemed people 
is to love our benefactor in proportion to the price that was paid for our ransom. Does that make sense to you? That is our obligation. There is no sacrifice too great for us to give in light of what we have received. Ah, Pastor, but I don't want to give up this and this and this. Because I think that these things are really worth more to me than the ransom price of the blood of Christ for my redemption. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 7, With the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. The King James, it's, it's plenteous. It means bounteous, luxuriant redemption. What a magnificent truth to know that somehow the rivers of redemption overflow with more than enough water of grace to cleanse any sinner who will come like Naaman and dip themselves into the cleansing flow. And our obligation should therefore be obvious. We should love our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to be willing to be a living sacrifice and give up anything that might put us in the pathway of the world to deny ourselves and to flee from the very appearance of evil. Because indeed our ransom was paid, and it was paid with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, it's also important for us to understand theologically that God cannot be merciful at the expense of justice. So something had to be done. God is holy. We are not. All sin must be punished. And since we have violated His holy law, we are indebted to Him. That is the theme all through Scripture. And He alone is the creditor who has the right to establish the price of the ransom, of our ransom. And of course, the only way he could possibly satisfy his justice, to appease his justice, is through the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his blood. And so the price had to be his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, Christ became our substitute and paid the penalty of sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And in Galatians 4, we read in verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Indeed, as 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Christ Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So folks, here's the good news. When a sinner places his faith in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the accumulated sins of that person's life are forever forgiven, having been paid by Christ. That's the glorious news of the gospel. That's redemption. And what a tragedy when we have friends and loved ones who refuse to see the blackness of their sins, who refuse to see the filth of their current condition before a holy God, who somehow are unable to see the need for cleansing, and they really don't experience guilt as they should. They feel no weight of conscience, and therefore 
They have no longing for pardon. And how we pray that God in His mercy will bring conviction to them. I pray for misery of body and soul for those people. I pray that that will be their only companion until they wake from the slumber of their pride and ignorance and run to the foot of the cross and cry out for undeserved mercy. And if that is truly a person's heart cry, they will receive that mercy. For indeed, never is a man closer to grace than when he is absolutely convinced that he cannot have it. Nor does he deserve it. Child of God, this is the infinite cost of our redemption. The blood of Christ. And I pray that that will stir you to holiness. And as we move along here, we see not only should we be motivated by the deliverance of our redemption and the cost, but the transcendence of it. Notice four supernatural qualities here of the nature of our Redeemer. We see first the predetermination of our Redeemer in verse 20. It says that He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. To think that God's plan for sending His Son as our Redeemer, as the incarnate Christ, was ordained before creation. Imagine that. Incomprehensible. That our Redeemer and our redemption was set into motion before time even began, before we were even created. As Revelation 13.8 says, that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. It's interesting that God describes His predetermined plan and His love for His Son in Isaiah 42, verse 1. It says, Behold, My servant whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom My soul delights, I have put My Spirit upon Him, and He will bring forth justice to the nations. Paul even said in 2 Timothy 1.9 that His purpose and grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, literally in the Greek, before time began. And indeed, dear friends, the undeniable and repeated theme throughout Scripture is that God's plan of salvation is a predetermined plan ordained by a sovereign God. And so Peter reminds us of the predetermination of our Redeemer, but also, secondly, the incarnation of our Redeemer. At the end of verse 20, he talks about how that... um, That He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. Moving into verse 21. And here He speaks of the incarnation. And indeed we know that as Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 6, although He, referring to Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason that Paul said in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. So we see the transcendence of redemption here and the predetermination of our Redeemer and the incarnation, but also in verse 21, the resurrection of our Redeemer. It says that He was raised from the dead here. And again, His resurrection was God's way of certifying or validating, if you will, 
that indeed the work of redemption was perfectly accomplished. And we also see the transcendence of redemption in his glorification at the end of verse 21. It says that, and he gave him glory. Paul reminds us of this as well in Philippians 2, in verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. What an amazing description of the transcendence, the supernatural nature of our Redeemer. All the more reason for us to live lives of purity and holiness. And finally, we are exalted to holy living as we look at the blessing of redemption. The end of verse 20, he talks about this, for the sake of you, he has appeared in these last times, for the sake of you who appear who through Him are believers in God. And at the end of verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. I want you to understand this as we close this morning. It is by the blood of Christ that we have been redeemed. And it is by the power of Christ that we were able to believe the Gospel. And what an enormous and I believe often neglected blessing is ours. This blessing of therefore having faith and hope in God. The blessing of redemption. Folks, what would it be like if we had no faith? What would it be like if we had no hope? If that was me, I'd be like everybody else. I, you know, give me a beer. You know, let's just go have a big time. Because this whole thing's just meaningless. Let's party. But we don't have that. Instead, we have a trust in the unfailing love and the sovereign rule of a holy God that therefore assures us that all of His promises to us will come to fruition. What a blessing we have in our redemption. You see, our redemption has purchased these marvelous gifts of faith and of hope. All the more reason for us to live lives that are consecrated to Him and to take seriously our role of sanctification. Child of God, please hear me. Even as the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites set them apart from the Egyptians, so too the blood of Christ should set us apart from all other people in the world. And even as the blood of the Lamb will set us apart on the day of judgment, so too it should set us apart from the world as we live out our lives. To come out and to be separate from them. And how we dress and what we watch on television, what we subject our children to, how we think, what we hear on the radio, what we read. Spurgeon said it so well, and I quote, Let us never forget the purifying power of Jesus in the heart. Wherever He is trusted in to take away the guilt of sin, we must seek next the water which flowed with the blood to take away the power of sin. And we must ask to see Him sit as the refiner to purify. Yea, it must be our prayer that He would take His fan in His hand and purge our hearts as He doth His floor. May we make this, dear friends, the focus of our prayer. Even as the psalmist said in Psalm 139, beginning in verse 23, Lord, purify my heart. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. 
and lead me in the way everlasting. So I challenge you this morning to examine your heart and to decisively commit yourself and your family to walk on a higher road of holiness. May this indeed be your heart's desire. And may it be motivated as you contemplate the marvels of, marvels of our redemption. And I close with these thoughts put to meter and rhyme. In sin's dread bondage, once I toiled, unwittingly behaved, consumed by lust, my flesh to spoil, hopeless, lost, depraved. Dead in sin, I pulled my oar, the devil's galley slave, destined for that ghastly shore of hell for sins to pay. Unable to redeem myself, the price for sin too high, no one save the Lord Himself could my salvation buy. Yet with His blood my ransom paid and set this captive free. His sinless life for mine the trade. O oh soul, how can it be? Praise be to our Redeemer King, whose love has paid the price. And now with all the saints I sing of His sweet sacrifice. With joy my life I sacrifice, for nothing can compare to my Redeemer's ransom price and glory someday shared. Let's pray together. Father, I ask as Your servant that these glorious truths will somehow find a place in our hearts and bear much fruit. May we be a people dedicated to living lives of Christ-likeness. Lord, may we be a people indeed that desire to not just choose between good and evil, but between good and excellent. And I pray as always, Lord, that You will bring conviction to the heart of any sinner that might be within the sound of my voice, that knows nothing of the glories of redemption. Lord, how I pray that You will overwhelm them with the truth and may they run to the foot of the cross. And Lord, would that today be the day of their salvation when they experience the miracle of the new birth in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.